0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Westminster Seminary, California. What is the biggest ecclesiological problem facing the Reformed churches today?
1: What is your advice for shepherding this dear brother in a winsome, but persuasive way. So my question is how do we respond to those objections? Where dramatically the mood is imperative, but it is truly a gospel passage. My question is where does that phrase come from, uh, historically and biblically, and how is it defined? Hi again. The response to our first episode of Ask the Props was so terrific, we're doing it again in September. You have questions for our faculty, and they have answers. Your question might be about a biblical passage or some aspect of Christian teaching, church history, church life or The Christian Life. Call us with your questions and office hours will find an answer from our faculty and we'll broadcast it this September 2011. If we use your question, we'll send you a copy of Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey, available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Call us at 760-480-8477. That's 760-480-8477 with your your question. Leave a message with your name, your email address, and your shipping address. We won't broadcast anything but your name. If we use your question, we'll send you a copy of the book just for playing. Don't miss out. You'll learn, you'll have fun, you may get a free book. Call Office Hours now 760 480 8477. Don't forget to like, the Office Hours page at wscal.edu slash officehours. Or give us a rating or even a review on iTunes, and that will help others find Office Hours. And thanks for listening to Office Hours. For many evangelical and Reformed Christians, the early church is an undiscovered country. Many of us learned a story of the church that starts with the book of Acts, skips the intervening 1,500 years, and picks up with the Reformation, or perhaps even with the 19th century. Some Reformed and evangelical scholars, however, have journeyed to the undiscovered country of the early church. And Rich Bishop is one of those who has made a study of the early fathers. He graduated from Wheaton College in 1996 and from Westminster Seminary, California in 2002 with an M.A., in historical theology. He earned his PhD under Robert Wilkin at the University of Virginia in 2009. And since then, he's taught at the University of Virginia here at Westminster Seminary, California, and is presently a postdoctoral research fellow at the Catholic University of Louvain. Hi, Rich. Welcome to Office Hours. Thanks. Great to be here. First of all, let's define our terms. When we talk about studying the fathers, the technical term, or one of the technical terms that is used, is patristics. And people say, I'm interested in the church fathers, or I'm interested in patristics. Who are the church fathers, and what is patristics?
2: What does that mean? The church fathers, I suppose one way to define them would be people who have left written remains behind them and who wrote and led the church in the early centuries of Christianity. So, say, you know, second through the fifth or sixth centuries, something like that. Patristics would be the study of the church fathers, particularly their theology. I think there's a broader way to look at the history of early Christianity. Namely, if you think about Christianity, whatever it is, it's at least in part a cultural phenomenon. And that would include not just study of theology, but every aspect of life that Christianity touched. So I think all of that forms a broader context for the study of Christianity. And I mean things like history of architecture and uh, history of art and political history. All that feeds into the discipline of patristics. But patristics itself, I think of that more as uh, studying the theology that emerged from that period.
1: What are some of the different ways that people have approached the study of the early fathers?
2: Well, I think the main ways would relate to the different branches of Christianity. So for Roman Catholics, the study of the Church Fathers, that's an important part of the Catholic tradition. So it's always been a part of Roman Catholic education. I I don't think there was ever a time when the Catholic Church didn't study the Church Fathers, and they continue to do that today. And you could say the same thing with appropriate changes being made of the Eastern Orthodox Communions. So the study of theology is one way of approaching the study of the church fathers. Modern scholarship probably takes several different ways to study the church fathers. Studying the history of the theology would be one, but there's also the institutional history of the church, the history of early Christian interaction with the political culture of the day, social history, any number of different approaches are cropping up.
1: There seems to be a fair bit of interest among evangelical Christians in the early fathers. How do you account for that, and what do you make of the sort of renaissance of evangelical interest in the Fathers?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting topic. I think as evangelical Christians try to locate themselves historically and theologically, they're looking for parts of the Christian tradition to learn from, emulate, claim as their own, and the early church seems to be a period that people are turning to more and more. In some cases, I think it's an effort to get away from reformational debates, so in other words, to go back behind the Reformation. In other cases, I think it's more just a question of intellectual or theological curiosity about what our ancestors in Christianity said. Uh, so there are probably a
0: variety of motivations, but those would be a few. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Sometimes evangelicals who have had
1: very little sense of continuity with the historic church come into contact with the fathers, and they don't have any other way of reading them than, for example, let's say the Roman Catholic way of appropriating the fathers, if we can speak generically. I understand that's probably a pretty gross oversimplification of things, but... As they come into contact with the fathers and they realize that there was a Christian tradition prior to the 19th century revivals and 20th century evangelicalism, they feel like the only way to really reconnect with the history of Christianity and with Christianity prior to the modern period is to become Roman Catholic. So here's the question I'm really trying to ask. Is studying the fathers sort of a gateway to Roman Catholicism? or is there a way of studying the fathers a way of doing justice to them and remaining a protestant
2: well it certainly can be a gateway to roman catholicism because it's happened and is happening so that's definitely possible is there are there other ways to study the fathers yeah if you read Luther, Calvin, or any prominent Reformational figure, all you have to do is turn to the index of authors cited in any of their works, and you'll realize that they too read the Church Fathers. So there must be Protestant ways of reading the Church Fathers. Of course, modern scholars would like to uh, distance themselves from what they would call confessional readings of the Church Fathers, so they're seeking a more academic approach. So, yeah, I think evangelicals have a variety of ways open to them, and perhaps because evangelicalism itself uh, lacks a, a long historical tradition or seeks to attach itself to a long historical tradition that often picks the Roman Catholic tradition.
1: How did the Reformers and their successors in the 17th century read the Fathers, appropriate them, interact with them? Did they read them well? Are they? Can we emulate them in that respect, or what should we think about the Reformation use of the fathers?
2: Uh, that's a really interesting and complex question, and one I hope to study more deeply in my career in the future. First of all, I think we could say that there was quite a quite an interest in the church fathers. I think that's been well documented by Reformational figures. They probably did not read the Church Fathers with the methodological sophistication that's available today, although they were heirs to the Renaissance, and for their time, they often were making use of the better scholarship available, often but not always. As far as theological inheritance from the early Church by Reformational figures, I think that's an area that needs to be explored, and I think there are a lot of possibilities. I mean, it's obvious... For example, that Luther was influenced by Augustine and Calvin was interested in Chrysostom. But there's certainly a lot more work to do in that area. So I'm interested in that topic and hope to have more to say about it as time goes on.
1: One of the difficulties that Protestants may have, and maybe everyone has, in reading The Fathers is that it's a very diverse group of people, for one thing. In fact, in some respects, speaking of The Fathers the way that we often do, or patristics, might give people the impression that it's a unified body of thought, when in fact it covers a large geographic area, and it covers hundreds of years of time, and it covers a wide variety of personalities, approaches, views. And so there's a lot of diversity among the fathers. As you try to get to grips with a broader field, where does one begin with the study of the fathers? Let's say someone's listening to this broadcast and they're thinking, well, you know, this is interesting. This is stimulating. I, I'd like to look into this. Where would you tell someone to start?
2: That's a good question. In addition to the other kinds of diversity you mentioned, there's also quite a bit of linguistic diversity, not just Greek and Latin, but also for lesser known languages like Syriac, Coptic, Armenian, Georgian. So yes, it is a very diverse group of writings. And I suspect... Most of us will not learn all of those languages. (laughs) Where to start? You know, probably I would start with primary sources, well-known figures. If you haven't read Augustine's Confessions, pick it up and read it. It's a good book. Moving on from there, Augustine has many other writings, but there are other figures you can branch out and read some of the Greek-speaking fathers, like Chrysostom or the Cappadocian Fathers.
1: And these are in English translation?
2: Yes. Most of the Greek and Latin church fathers have been translated into English. Not everything that they've written, but quite a bit. There's a good book series that Routledge puts out and has a book devoted to each, not each church father, but many, with a selection of English translations and good introductions. That's a good way to get introduced to individual figures. Some of the other language groups that I mentioned are less well represented in English translation, so they're much less accessible. But that also means that there's room for people who are interested in patristics to study Syriac-speaking Christianity, for example, or some of the other language groups I mentioned.
1: One of the most widely published, widely reprinted and available English translations of the Fathers is the Antonicene Nicene and post-Nicene Fathers series. Do you have any opinions about the value of those translations, anything of which readers should be aware if they read the Fathers through those texts? Because I ask because they're widely available online, they're free, they're public domain, people have them on their Kindles, their iPads, their phones, and so forth.
2: Uh, Yeah, well, first of all, they're older translations, so the English is a little bit archaic. I think, by and large, they're not bad. So if you can get a hold of a more recent translation, they're often better, but not always. Uh, The other thing to be aware of is that the scholarship, for example, the introductions and the footnotes and things like that, it's quite old. So there's been a lot of advance in patristic scholarship since then. When we come back, I have a
1: question for you, and that question is this. The Fathers existed in relative proximity to the apostolic period, and the temptation in reading the Fathers might be to say, well, these people are much closer to the apostles than we are, and therefore they must necessarily reflect the apostolic theology, piety, and practice— more faithfully and clearly than other writers, and, and therefore the best way to get to know what happened to the apostolic church and to really get next to the apostolic church is to do so th- through the fathers. When we come back, I want you to talk about that, and we'll do that right after this.
0: In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, Jake Gresham Machen the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. Wscal.edu 888-480-8474 Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church.
2: Yeah, I think that's a fairly naive view of the early church and how history works in general. You know, even a relatively early figure like Origen from the third century, you know, only a couple hundred years removed from the New Testament, but that's still a couple hundred years. And there were very significant changes and differences between Origen's world and Palestine in the first century. So I don't think very many serious scholars of early Christianity think in those terms that, you know, that because you read 3rd century sources that you therefore have a clear insight into what Paul, for example, was saying in the 1st century. That said, you know maybe if you go back a little bit earlier into the 2nd century, and especially early 2nd century, then you're, you're getting rather close to the New Testament. And so I, th- I think you can begin to make some of those arguments that project back to the New Testament era. Also, just in terms of the big picture, when you're thinking about interpreting first century Christianity, I I think your interpretation has to be able to account for what came after, you know, to be able to make it understandable how second and third century Christianity could arise. So it's useful for New Testament scholars or people who are interested in understanding and interpreting the New Testament to know something about the history of the early church, to be able to talk intelligently about what came after the documents in the era they're interested in.
1: Let's back up. I have lots of other questions, but let's back up for a moment and answer some questions about you. You did your master's study here at Westminster Seminary, California, which is a seminary that's devoted to the Reformed theology, piety, and practice as taught in Scripture and confessed by the Reformed churches in the Westminster Standards and in the Heidelberg Catechism Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort. How did you get from a place like this, and before you were here, you you were at Wheaton, how did you get from Wheaton and then Westminster to the fathers, to the patristics? What drew you to the study
2: of the ancient church? I think it probably happened while I was here at Westminster. I knew I was interested in historical theology or the history of Christian thought when I came here. And part of the reason I was attracted to Westminster was because it had a strong program in historical theology. Uh, So when I got here, uh, we had a seminar on patristic Christianity, and I Really enjoyed that seminar and the text we read. So, you know, it's it's not hard to get interested in the Church Fathers. You just have to read them, and that usually does it for a, a lot of people who do that. And as time went on, when I decided I wanted to go on to graduate school, I applied for programs in the early Church. I also applied for programs in the Reformation period, and I, I think I got into the programs in the early Church and not the programs in the Reformation period, <laughs> uh, but I'm glad I went that direction. In studying theology, I think a lot of interesting things happen at the boundaries of disciplines or eras, and Reformational theology and the early church are not contiguous in history, but I think that there are uh, interesting connections between the two periods.
1: We've talked about a lot of the difficulties in studying the fathers,
2: but what happens if we don't study the fathers? What happens if we ignore them? Then you end up rather uninformed about Insignificant topics like the Incarnation or the Trinity or the canon of Scripture.
1: So these are huge questions. In other words, how we received the Bible that we have, you have to know the story of the ancient church and know the questions that the ancient church was facing in order to be able to give something like a complete account of what happened. How much would it have helped us when the Dan Brown novels came out? if evangelical Christians had a more complete grasp of the life and work of the early church?
2: You know, I don't think that there are many serious scholars who take those novels seriously as, you know, important accounts of the history of the early church. I mean, there there are some pretty laughable historical missteps or misrepresentations. In, but in but Christians novels.
1: are facing – I mean when the Dan Brown yeah. novels came out and when the movie or movies came out, lay Christians who are perhaps not scholars did find themselves in conversation with people who had read the books or seen the movies and then who would turn around and say, well, look, it's been shown that mm-hmm. – da-da-da-da-da. And so I'm asking if the average evangelical or Reformed Christian knew the fathers and knew the patristic, the history of the patristic church, how would we have been better equipped to deal with the challenges created by people like Brown?
2: Yeah, well, I think we could have said, you know, in fact, that hasn't been shown or, you know, that's not really a credible interpretation of the early church or various historical claims that are assumed or implied in those texts. So yeah, that would be a good example of how better knowledge of early Christianity could help you avoid, you know, a little bit of sensationalism. I guess you could make the analogy that astronomers have to put up with astrology and historians of early Christianity have to put up with the damn Browns of the world.
1: That's great. I'm, I'm going to use that, but I'll give you credit. I think that's terrific. And there were other, obviously, essential questions for Christianity that were hammered out, worked out in the cauldron of controversy in the first five centuries of the life of the church. You mentioned Christology, the question of the two natures of Christ. Christians were challenged both internally and externally as to who Jesus was and who he is. And there were critics. Robert Wilkin has written a wonderful volume surveying some of the major critics of the faith and of Christianity. Uh, in the ancient world, and in that volume, the title escapes me just now, he describes some of the criticisms made of Christianity, which really haven't changed. Some of the early critics of Christianity anticipated what's today called higher criticism by 1,500 years or more.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that book's called The Christians as the Romans Saw Them. Exactly. There we go. Yeah. You know, that's a good example of— where studying uh, the history of early Christianity could, you know, help you get into some of the theological, philosophical issues that occur again and again throughout the history of Christianity. Another example of where studying the history of early Christianity is relevant today would be in the relationship between Christianity and Islam. There was a whole segment of the early church that we don't hear as much about, and that's Syriac speaking Christianity, namely the Christianity of the Middle East, uh, which thrived in the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries and beyond, but eventually was crowded out after the rise of Islam. But uh, there's a rich tradition there, and those Christians have a long historical experience with Islam and Muslims. And I think as uh, that becomes a more important topic in our world, we would do well to see how Christians in other times and places talked to Muslims and talked about Islam, and uh, I'm sure there are both kinds of lessons there, you know, examples to follow and and pitfalls to avoid.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
2: Earlier, you mentioned that the
1: Reformers made a conscious use of, appealed to, and and gave themselves over to the serious reading of the Fathers in, in light of what was known when they were when they, when they were alive in, in light of Renaissance recovery of original texts and some of the Renaissance methods of reading texts. What place is there, however, in the modern study of the fathers for Reformed people? Are you an alien or do you fit in the discipline? And if so, do you bring to the discipline maybe questions or perspectives that other scholars might not bring?
2: Well, maybe it's best to try to answer that question autobiographically. I think that coming to seminary and learning a particular theological tradition before really studying the Fathers in depth was immensely helpful. It gave me a kind of roadmap, a a way to locate people and what they were doing theologically. I, I had a better sense, I think, than I would have of what theological questions are important, what questions are peripheral. The tradition I was trained in was the Reformed tradition. I think other traditions could function in a similar way, and you know the results would be different depending on the tradition. So I think it gives you a good platform from which to begin the study of the Church Fathers. On the other hand, uh, I think it's possible to abuse the study of the Church Fathers by coming to it and just asking questions that Reformed Christians are interested in I think it's better to try to read early Christians on their own terms and understand what the issues and challenges were that they were facing and what the uh, solutions were to the issues they had or questions they raised. So there's an advantage to having a theological training under your belt, but there's also a caution in that you don't want to read too much into it in an earlier period.
1: You want to do good history. You don't want to be guilty of anachronism. One of the things of which I try to convince the students is that when we do church history and when we do historical theology, we're doing family history. And these are our people, and we may or may not agree with—I don't know anyone who agrees with everyone in their family, and yet they're still family. And so when we read the fathers, we read them as family, but— Simply because a father says something doesn't mean necessarily that we are theologically going to agree with it. But we want to do good historical work and let them speak in their own voice, in their own time, their own place.
2: Yeah, I like to say that uh, reading early Christians always gives you something to think about, but you won't necessarily agree with everything that you find said there.
1: And you shouldn't, really.
2: Yeah, and I think it's probably not healthy to only read people that you agree with of the time.
1: You're certainly not going to learn very much. Um, Last thing that I want to get into is your current research. You are a postdoctoral fellow, and you're living in Belgium, and you're visiting us here now, doing a little teaching for us in a short-term course. But uh, when you go back to Europe, you're going to be engaged in some pretty serious research. Talk about that for a few moments.
2: I have this uh, three-year fellowship at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium, And I am studying Greek Patristics, and in particular, I'm studying early Christian sermons. And the body of sermons I'm working with are all sermons about the liturgical feasts of Ascension and Pentecost in the Greek-speaking church from the years uh, roughly 350 to 450, so 4th and 5th century. And the task I have in front of me is to translate this body of sermons from Greek into English and analyzed them in a series of articles. A couple of the reasons this topic is worth doing. One, sermons, although they've received a fair amount of attention in recent years, are comparatively understudied. In other words, more people have read the theological treatises of the Church Fathers while the sermons and commentaries of the Fathers have perhaps in the past been neglected. A lot has been written in the history of Christianity and the early church in particular about the feasts of Christmas and Easter, you know, the two big occasions of the liturgical year, but less has been done on Ascension and Pentecost, so hence the interest in these sermons. Of course, to Reformed Christians studying the liturgical year might seem a bit of a, a stretch, but it actually ends up being an interesting uh place to talk about the Holy Spirit, for example, on the occasion of Pentecost, and Christology and the ascension of Christ. So I I think there are uh, lots of reasons to be interested. And of course, it's an important source of information about the development of early Christian worship. So that's what I'm working on now.
1: If there was one secondary text to which you could direct readers to help them in their reading of the Father's, And I know this is a very difficult question because there are lots of good secondary works to which you could direct them. But is there one place you could send an interested reader to continue study of the Fathers?
2: Well, two books by my advisor, Robert Wilkin, who I think is a great writer. One is called The Spirit of Early Christian Thought. And that would be a good introduction to understanding how the Fathers do theology and another is a book that he's working on, and I don't think it's come out yet, but it will be called something like The First Thousand Years, and that, w- that would be a good historical introduction to Christianity. Professor Wilkin does a great job of condensing a lot of scholarship into accessible, winsome, and understandable books. So I think those two books would be good places to start.
1: Do you have a favorite patristic writer?
2: It would be hard for me to talk about a favorite. I think I like different writers for different reasons.
1: Okay, give us a short list, two or three writers that you like and why you like them.
2: Well, I think Augustine has to go on everyone's list.
1: Why? Other than, obviously, he's massively influential.
2: He is massively influential, and he's widely read. And I think the reason he's widely read is that he has a lot of interesting things to say. I think Protestants in particular ought to be interested in Augustine because the early Protestants were so influenced by him in almost all the topics that Augustine addressed. He had significant and original things to say. So he's still worth reading today. One other writer who I think Reformed Christians in particular might be interested in reading who is not widely read is Ephraim the Syrian. We just read a little bit of Ephraim in the class I taught. And we read some of his texts on Genesis 1 through 3. And it sounds a lot like covenant theology. It's very interesting. doesn't use the word covenant, but I think Reformed folks would would find it great. There's a little volume called Hymns on Paradise put out by St. Vladimir's Seminary Press. Pick it up and flip through it.
0: Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights